Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. This week on the nonprofit news feed, of course, brought to you by Whole Whale, because this is the podcast you're listening to. We're giving you a look at the announcement coming from the administration about student loan forgiveness and a nice little thing about public service loans in there. And Nick, how's it going? It's going good, George. How are you? Doing all right. Getting getting ready for the final, this is like the final sprint of the year, you know, as we move into uh, September, moving into giving season. This is when things start to rile up. I'm excited. We got some some new clients jumping on board and new staff members joining us. Like uh, a lot of things going on over at the old whole whale. Yeah, I'd say the unofficial start of fall almost upon us. So we Hold can on, dive... I have a question actually for you. Yeah. you dive in. I've been thinking about releasing like more information to our audience about just like the nonprofit news because we're building this thing on the side in some ways, like the content, the traffic, the audience. I was like maybe a little build in public. I don't know how much to to go there. People be interested. So what was your hot take there? Yeah, I think it'd be fun for our listeners to see more into how we put the nonprofit news feed together, our our process, our sources, what we look for, how we identify trends. I think all of that could be really valuable. I mean, I was going to share the trap. So if you sign up for the newsletter, I'll, I will actually, I think, maybe even share snapshots of like, here are analytics. Here's how we're growing. Here's how we're thinking about it. Because we're growing this thing from scratch. And I, I think there's there can be a lot to learn as you're like, oh. You know, here's us at only a few hundred. And now we're at a few thousand. Now, you know, kind of grinding our way up. We'll see. Join the newsletter. We'll see. Absolutely. I like that. Radical transparency. But in addition to radical transparency, uh, we have some big policy updates coming from the White House. So our first story this week is we're going to be talking about the Biden administration announcing $10,000 and $20,000 student loan forgiveness, which most borrowers are in fact eligible for. So last week, the administration announced that uh, borrowers making less than $125,000 in salary um, that still have student loans um, can have $10,000 of that uh, canceled uh, with regards to federal student loans. And for Pell Grant recipients, they may have up to $20,000 of uh, federal loan debt forgiven. So this sweeping announcement was a major policy move, also met with some controversy on both sides of the aisle. Um, But according to the White House, 87% of the eligible borrowers make less than $75,000, which points to a program that largely helps middle and lower class borrowers and will also disproportionately benefit historically debt-burdened communities, including Black borrowers who hold, quote, a disproportionate amount of student loan debt. Another thing that we wanted to flag here, which is a little bit separate, but also along the lines of student loans, is that during the pandemic, some of the rules have shifted temporarily around the public service loan forgiveness program, which is essentially that public servants in public or nonprofit roles um, actually have eligibility for loan forgiveness. And those rules have temporarily been shifted, but calling out that um, some of those temporary rules 
uh, you must consolidate those loans by October 31st to benefit. We have lots of links in the news feed, which you should all subscribe to that break it down much more because it's much more complicated than I can put into a blurb. But George, the big story here is essentially $10,000 in student loans are given for borrowers still with debt. What's your takeaway? I've been listening to people celebrating people on the contrarian side and the arguments. And you see a lot of people saying, well, wait a minute. I, you know, I did the hard work of paying off my loans. Where's my bonus? Where's my bailout? And, you know, it's, you know, that I'll park that argument in the sort of ethical trolley problem of like, you've already had this issue where, you know, in the trolley problem, you know, do you deliberately turn to swerve to save someone's life versus saving other people's lives? And it's this philosophical debate. And it's, the truth is people that have already paid off their debt or even worse, been taken advantage of by the educational industry, the complex in our country and the debt associated with it, uh, that is in the past. And the question is, is it, is it just or moral to say just because I suffered through it, should you as well? And should you not get something because I didn't? Is a, It's a small argument. I would say the larger piece here is the fact that this is not a systemic change. This is one and done. And it's different than other bailouts too, because this is just giving money essentially into this larger system. Yes, I know it's going to disproportionately uh, affect these borrowers. I'm curious about the distribution and the claims of black and brown borrowers being disproportionately represented in this group. I, I would be curious to see the, the data very much, you know, much more closely. But the, the larger truth is this is one and done. This is 2022 happens to be right before the midterms, not an accident. I'm not even sure, Nick, can you help me? Is this executive order being challenged? Did this go through already? Yeah, so this is via executive order, right? This wasn't Congress passing legislation. They famously can't do that, but um, or are unable to do that. <laughs> we can't, can't do it. We uh, should definitely expect legal challenges to this. Um, it does seem that the White House is pretty confident they do have legal standing, but there will probably be lawsuits against this. Um, also, the timeline along which this will actually happen remains unclear. There's actually infrastructure um, that needs to be built, essentially, to kind of intake all these requests, right? And then um, essentially the Department of Education needs to figure out everybody's current salaries, right, to see if they qualify. So there's some bureaucratic work that needs to be done there. Um, I would say it's very likely that this will go through. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, there's there's some work, um, there's some infrastructure that needs to be built to facilitate this. So here's here's what I see. You know, this is this is a campaign promise that Biden made. However, the real solution here would be taking a deep dive look at the provision that when you declare bankruptcy, you cannot absolve yourself of student loans. I'll say that again. Bankruptcy, when declared by an individual, does not absolve you of student loans. Now, if you are a company, you're free and clear. You're fine. You get out of whatever liabilities and promises that, that you have. You just go ahead and march on. As an individual, you're locked into this debt. So sure, 2022, what about somebody going to a educational institution that is charging them far more potentially than their 
potential educational value is, right? The ROI of that education at uh, the school that they're going to. And these predatory educational institutions are very, very real. And they are taking advantage of the fact that you've got an audience, a customer base that is uninformed about long-term impacts of debt, taking out significant amounts of money on a future promise of employment that will pay it back. They're not going to get that check in 2024, 2025, the next graduating class. That money's not coming. What's more, the problem is actually made potentially worse that there is now a mindset of, oh, well, I can take out this debt because I'm going to get magic money from the government. The government's about to drop $300 billion on a one and done just this time, just for you, just because I promised it, rather than a systemic change to a process that is putting over a trillion dollars on people probably that can't afford it the most. And so it, it's just, it's frustrating to see this celebrated as a win when the real win is like so close, but so far it is, you know, it is something that I think is only going to accelerate, not even slow, accelerate the problem of uh, pretty predatory educational lending, we'll call it, and the, the lack of ROI by institutions promising the rising generation a, you know, a job, a way to pay back significant loans being taken on. Yeah. So George, would your argument be this is in fact not enough? My argument is that it is a Band-Aid. And not even that. It's worse than a Band-Aid. It is an accelerant. It's gasoline on a fire. It is showing people that, yes, you can take on even more debt because guess what the government's going to start to do? Just forgive all of it. Based on what? It is setting a dangerous precedent. I love, like, look, I am thrilled. I paid off my loans. I'm one of those folks that was like, oh, hey, if this happened, you know, a decade ago, I'd be, I'd be lined up. I was working at a nonprofit and I was well within a, you know, a salary range at certain points for this type of forgiveness. And the truth is I paid it back. And I'm thrilled for the people that are about to get this bonus. $300 billion spent to, to relieve debt is, is awesome, but it is uh, in the larger context. You know, and I know this, <laughs> there are folks listening to this. They're like, wait a minute. And you're saying I shouldn't get it. Like, I think, you know, we bailed out banks, but that was different. They got paid back. Those were loans. This is a, again, one and done. And if you look at the larger system, I get very nervous about what it essentially sets as a precedent. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair. Um, but I think to your point, it points as the significantly larger problem, which is that the cost of higher education and tuition has drastically far and away outpaced inflation in terms of growth. It is just by every single metric, unmistakably more expensive to go to college now than it was 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago by an order of magnitude um, to kind of scale the problem. But an interesting conversation. I'm sure one will definitely come back to. In, yeah, I'm sure when we get the New York for like, oh, Gary, like, we're getting 10K. I was like, yes, I know. I'm selling. Like, look, you know, those people, you know, here's the funny thing. You saw the White House going out. And responding to, you know, Taylor Green saying like, how dare you give out these loans? And then you say like, hey, by the way, you never paid back your PPP loan. Like people have been getting loans all over the place. The one time and done. I guess you should celebrate that. The PPP loans were very similar. They're not getting paid back by folks. So, you know, be careful what side of the mouth you're speaking out of. Again, I'd be celebrating if they had also in this 
past something that future generations of the system would have to pay attention to, such as that bankruptcy law, which is outrageous. That's called indenture servitude. That means you can't escape your debts. That is lunacy. Put one extra page in there about allowing individuals who declare bankruptcy to get out of, remember, the bankruptcy problem. Absurd, 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 absurd. So I'd be happy, I'd be celebrating if it looked at any manner of systemic solution to this. And I do like the public service loan forgiveness program. That is the one part here where I'm saying if you are in public sector working for good, those uh, those loan forgiveness programs should be continued. It is something that is ongoing and supports people that choose to say go in to uh, serve a greater good and then uh, absolve of student debt. That makes sense to me. A one-time check that shows up for you just by sheer luck of the draw is not a policy. It's just not. And it pisses people off because you're like, wait a minute, I got unlucky because I didn't happen to have this debt in the good year of 2022. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I will say, uh, having being directly affected by this, I did some research and it turns out um, if, for whatever reason, you paid off loans... Um, since when loans went into kind of that emergency forbearance. Um, so people haven't been required to pay back federal loans since like April of 2020. If mm. you paid off loans um, between then and now that put you under $10,000, or even if you paid it off completely, you can actually ask for reimbursements that will uh, bring you back up to that number so you would still qualify. Um, just a, a small technicality to put out there, but no, by all means, get that money. Let's be very, very, very clear. <laughs> if you are eligible, go get that money because that's how this works. For sure. Switching gears a little bit, I'll take us into our next story. I don't have a good transition. That wasn't. There's no transition into this. Uh, but George, this is. I know uh, you, you kind of posted this all around our our Slack channels. Um, but this is a segment from John Oliver last week tonight, which is like surprisingly good investigative journalism uh, wrapped in kind of a raunchy uh, late night talk show comedy format. Um, but it talks about carbon offsets. And I think what John Oliver would say uh, as the sham of greenwashing when it comes to corporate carbon uh, commitments and offsets. And George, I know you're a big kind of like a sustainability guy. So why don't you walk us through what you loved about this video? I've been waiting for this shoe to drop for quite some time. The idea of in this, and I, I encourage you, please, if you are involved in carbon offsets, if you're involved with programs that, you know, plant trees, promise trees, or in the corporate philanthropy, you should listen to this. Um, albeit, I will say John Oliver's flavor of liberal journalistic rage is, is one that turns some people off, but here's the important thing. And this is as a story, not going away. And the point that he makes is essentially boiled down to, uh, there's not enough freaking land on this planet to plant enough trees to deal with the amount of carbon being generated. One, two companies. And unfortunately, some nonprofits are pointed to here as sort of reselling carbon areas. So this tree over here that was going to be protected anyway is now sponsored by this company that is now claiming as a carbon offset, but there's no offset. 
the tree was going to be saved anyway. It was on our preservation. It wasn't going anywhere. And the problem is if companies can sort of buy or greenwash their way out of maybe doing business in an efficient carbon light, carbon free, carbon neutral way, then we've got a big problem because we're simply saying this tree is doing the work of, you know, 50,000 offsets because we've sold it this many times to this many groups. And so there are problems at almost every single layer here, including the method uh, fundamentally of we can plant trees and offset all of this carbon. Just it won't work. The math don't work. Number two, the the regulatory groups and agencies that certify uh, carbon offsets are a touch broken. And, you know, I think there's, uh, there's backlash. And that's also unfortunate because then, you know, wait a minute, like a bad system, better than no system, blow up the system, replace the system. You know, it's, it's not what I classify as solutions journalism, but it's something that has to be paid attention to if we are going to introduce the for-profit, non-profit sectors in a ecosystem of carbon offsets that are supposed to be saving our planet rather than producing really catchy branding campaigns. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's also somewhat the backlash to ESG, right? And uh, like publicly traded, like- Just remind us what a ESG stand for. Uh, environmental, social, and governance. And essentially it's a way of bucketing quote unquote, sustainable and responsible. You're like Exxon, I mean, like Exxon Mobil. Yeah, A notably ESG company. Yeah, exactly. But not Tesla, not an ESG company. Tesla is not an ESG company, correct? Exactly, exactly, right. So it's a way, you know, it's a way for the stock market to brand itself as being sustainable. But I I think it's the, it's the same thing, right? Until the, there are fundamental shifts in how these companies approach long-term sustainability. As of now, they're approaching it, I think many of them as a marketing thing, right? Because it's no longer marketable to be, you know, big, bad oil, but oh, big, bad oil that is in an ESG index or, you know, is planting trees. That makes it a little more palatable. But I think what we saw was the government recognizing that there needs to be a paradigm shift here with the Inflation Reduction Act, right? Making it, uh, making financial incentives for long-term genuine investments in sustainability. I think that's what's needed. Yeah, I felt a little bad in this episode where the Nature Conservancy just takes it on the chin without the ability to to respond, give context. So I imagine their team is actively working on on responses in terms of how they were represented in there. But it's it's a shot across the bow, to be sure. For sure. Well, taking us into our next story, this one comes from Crane's Detroit Business and. It's kind of an interesting article, not something we often talk about, but uh, the title is, Why Are So Many Nonprofit Execs Leaving Their Jobs? And the story dives into, uh, it starts with a list of major Michigan nonprofits that um, have recently found themselves seeking new top executives. So the Henry Ford Health Foundation, the University of Michigan, the New Economy, it just lists off all these Michigan-based nonprofits. But um, kind of the main argument here is that the pandemic led to uh, 
an increasing amount of retirements from nonprofit executives, burnout among nonprofit executives, as well as a shift in what nonprofits are expecting of their leaders with regards to addressing uh, racial inequality and social justice issues. And it seems that the, the too long didn't read TLDR is that uh, there's a lot of turnover at the top of nonprofits. Uh, George, I'm wondering what you make of that. Surprising, not surprising? Uh, does it represent change or does it represent volatility? It's the fundamental truth of generations moving in and out of the workforce. What I'm paying attention to is the speed with which it happens because you can celebrate the, the rising generation taking the C-suite over, which is great. But if it happens at a rug pull pace, meaning too fast to plan, there can be very negative externalities, meaning you have not been trained in all of the things that make the organization run. Um, if people are leaving too fast, too furious, there is currently also a labor shortage. <laughs> so how these nonprofits are, are trying to replace leadership just is a, is a reminder and a push for that transition plan. And I know that, you know, you, you hear it, but, uh, when I was on the board uh, of America's charities, one of those pieces that I was very focused on was one, we were in the process of bringing on new leadership, but then also it was like, as soon as they were in the door, I was like, all right, what's the, what's the succession plan? And, you know, he was like, well, we just got here. I was like, but what's the succession plan? Who's next in line? What if you get, you know, swallowed up by a volcano? And I think that's even more important than ever. So I bring this up simply because it is a, a rising trend, but one that if you are on, you know, if you're on a board, if you're on an exec team, like that plan needs to be in place um, at some level to be thought of. Yeah, for sure. The best time to start planning is now. So we tell our clients, end of year fundraising is almost here. End of year nonprofit executive turnover might be around the corner. Better be safe and sorry. All right, I'll take us into our next story. And this is our <laughs> story. George, you're, you're plugging actually a interview you did recently. Why don't you tell us about it? It's just shameless. I just found this top. I mean, look, if you're listening to this podcast, you're, I'm talking about the episode that just happened, but perhaps maybe you didn't listen to it. The uh, What is shadow moderation? We're going to be writing more about this. I'm trying to talk more about this, but uh, I think it's this massive issue, silencing speech and holding back uh, social discourse in a lot of forums that we are in. The probability that you have been moderated, silenced, or changed if you have posted on any group, be it on you know Facebook or Reddit or otherwise, is uh, is very high. And it, it kind of comes down to one salient point, which is I believe in our public forums managed by the social media powerful that we have the right to know if we have been censored. That's it. Like, sure. Moderation is great. Moderation should happen. If the internet are jerks, you should have the right to know if your post has been censored or modified by the platform such that it does not enter into the public discourse in a way that is uh, being presented to you. And I know algorithms do this all the time, but you see that in the views. You're like, oh, I guess it didn't get as I was pushed down by the algorithms. This is different than that. This is you posted something maybe in a, you know, lively debate about women's rights to their own bodies, and it was simply muted. 
and you think it wasn't muted and the rest of the community doesn't see it. And you continue on being a part of that group, thinking that what you are saying is being heard, that you are actually having um, a semi-public debate and trying to help people see from different points of view. And you continue that effort and you just continue to be muted and you don't realize it. And that's something very insidious. And it's being done purposefully by platforms because it increases and keeps engagement. It's not an accident. It's not a, whoops, we got this UX wrong. This is intentionally done. It's insidious and I'm furious about it. I'm sure uh, our listeners would love to hear more. So George, where can they find, I guess anywhere <laughs> to listen to this episode. <laughs> Go back in time and listen, right? No, I'm going to be writing more. Uh, I'm going to be writing more about this. And, you know, in my tiny little corner of the earth, make as much noise as I can. Uh, because, I don't know, maybe maybe somebody who's got a little bit more potency can, can, can do something with it. Absolutely. All right, George, how about a feel-good story? One, please. All right, this comes from Culture Map Austin, which is an Austin online news site. And it talks about the Flatwater Foundation an Austin nonprofit, which works at the intersection of cancer and mental health, supporting folks and families experiencing cancer with all the mental health challenges that come with it. But they're hosting their annual fundraiser, and this is a super cool one. It's a paddleboarding fundraiser. So apparently people paddleboard between two dams in a 21-mile course. That's like almost a marathon. Um, and their goal this year is to raise... $1.2 million, uh, and the foundation is hosting this fundraiser on September 12th. So if you're in the Austin area, it seems like a really cool thing to get involved in. Uh, I'm going to guess it's strenuous. I've never been paddleboarding, but 21 miles sounds like a, a far away. But hey, maybe that's your workout for the month of September. Wait a minute. They paddleboard 20, how many miles? That's, that's what it says. Uh, paddleboard travel between two dams, 21 mile course. That seems amazing. Um, I have never paddleboarded that far. This picture is incredible too. I encourage you to take a look at this, but also gives you an idea for uh, different fundraising challenges and ways to bring people together. This is uh, epic though. All right, next. thank you. Thanks, George. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 